I don't know whether it's good morning or good afternoon at, at noon. Probably it's good afternoon now. Um, so I'm Andre Montanino. I'm the director of the Global Business and Economics Program here at the Atlantic Council. I'm really delighted to see you today for the launch of the book by Anders Aslund and Simeon Jankov on the Europe's Growth Challenge. Um, this is really a timely book, uh, and it's a relevant issue. It's not relevant just for Europeans and European citizens, but it's extremely relevant also for the United States. Uh, what will happen uh, in the next year to European growth and whether Europe will continue to play a key role in the world given its, uh, its size in the economy and therefore whether it will continue to be uh, the, 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 the first partner, the most important partner uh, for the United States. Uh, I think there are a lot of challenges around and without uh, uh, higher and sustainable growth, uh, Europe will risk to fall apart. Um, Anders and, uh, and Simeon books, uh, in a way, uh, show uh, a path towards. Uh, they show a number of reforms that, that can be taken uh, in order to uh, to restore uh, growth uh, in Europe. So I'm really uh, delighted uh, that uh, uh, that we'll present today this book and uh, I'm really look forward for, for the discussion. The event today is part of our Eurogrowth uh, initiative uh, that provide a platform um, to stimulate thinking on how to restore sustainable growth across Europe. And I would say as a response to raising uh, populism we are pretty convinced that there are no alternative proposals in the populism in Europe now. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, it's by the current, say, leadership uh, uh, or the traditional leadership of Europe to provide uh, responses. Um, uh, we started the Eurogrowth Initiative last uh, March. Um, we addressed a lot of uh, challenges. We hosted, I think, six or seven European commissioners, a number of finance ministers, governors, central banks. And we look at several uh, areas and aspects. The, 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 we made an argument for TTIP. We uh, look at uh, the challenges posed by the surge of the refugees and how this can be transformed in opportunities. We look at Brexit. Uh, we analyze how Europe can attract more investment uh, to foster, uh, to foster uh, growth. Um, before I hand over the mic to uh, today's moderator, uh, I'd like to ask you all to mark your calendar for next week. Probably you have seen on your chairs uh, a leaflet. On Thursday, um, January 26 at 12 p.m., we'll have an, uh, our next event for the Eurogrowth Initiative. It will be an interactive uh, panel discussion. Uh, interactive means will be a Q&A with the public uh, with Ana Palacio, the former Foreign Affairs Minister of, uh, uh, of Spain, Ambassador Boyden Gray, the former uh, U.S. Ambassador to the European Union and General Counsel of the White House uh, under the Bush administration, uh, George Alagos Koufis, uh, professor in Tuft University and former Minister of Finance of Greece, and Shekhar Ayar from uh, the European Division of the, uh, of the IMF. We will discuss in particular the challenges in 2017, so we'll look at the short term and how to engage uh, relation with the new U.S. Uh, administration in order to foster economic growth both in Europe and in the U.S. So now it's my pleasure to introduce 
Caroline, Caroline Vecini, uh, who will moderate the discussion today. Uh, she serves as the deputy head of the EU delegation in Washington. Uh, prior to joining the delegation, Caroline served uh, as Chief of Protocol with the rank of Ambassador at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Stockholm. And uh, uh, from 2004-2008, she was already in, uh, in D.C., in Washington, as a Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of, uh, uh, of Sweden. So without further ado, let me uh, hand over to, to you, Caroline. Thank you. So uh, thank you, Andrea, um, for um, hosting us here today. Um, we, are, we are at the EU delegation very grateful for this initiative that you are driving here, um, uh, providing an intellectual space, so to say, for debates on, on EU and EU's economy um, and how to, pro, uh, to promote growth. And this book certainly um, fits very, very well into your, into your mission um, as well. Um, it's my pleasure to, to be here to become, uh, or to be the, moni uh, the moderator of, of today's um, discussion. And, and I was particularly pleasure, um, pleased to do it because I know Anders Oslund, who is one of the, of the authors of the book um, since many, many years. Um, uh, and Anders uh, got well known uh, in, in Sweden and elsewhere for his uh, pioneer work in, in, in both Russia and Ukraine in trying to help those two countries to transfer, transfer from a, a sort of state economy into modern capitalism and market economy. And Anders um, is now um, the resident uh, senior fellow here at the Dino Patriciu Eurasian Center. And um, he has also spent uh, many years at um, Peterson Institute um, uh, here in Washington. And he's particularly focused still on, on Russia and Ukraine and uh, the Eastern Europe. And that's, of course, a knowledge that has um, served him very well in, in, writing, in writing this book. Anders also worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace between 94 and 2005, and he has also been at the Brookings Institution and the Woodrow Wilson Center. So it's a, it's a true think tanker that we, we have here. And he has paired up with um, Simeon Dankov, who unfortunately cannot be here today. He should have been here. He's been retained in, uh, in Bulgaria uh, for uh, family reasons, I believe. Uh, but um, Mr. Dankov, uh, who is today a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economies, was a deputy prime minister uh, and Minister of Finance of Bulgaria. And that was between 2009 and 2013. And he has also been a chief economist of the finance and private sector vice presidency of the World Bank. He is also the director of the financial market group in the London School of Economics. <coughs> and uh, he has therefore um, uh, a very um, thorough knowledge also of, of the sort of reshaping of the eastern um, uh, countries in the, um, in the EU that made a fantastic, uh, one must say, fantastic trip from uh, being a state 
uh, economies and to get up to pair with, with the rest of the western part of the EU. Together we have, to, today also we have here as a discussant uh, Paul Thompson from uh, the IMF where he's the director at the Europe department and uh, Mr. Thompson is then the person who has the most hands-on experience on, on, on grappling with uh, the European economies. Um, he is in charge of IMF's programs with Greece and Portugal. And he also oversees the work of other country teams, including Iceland, Romania, and Ukraine. Um, and in, he worked during the 90s and early 2000 um, on the economic and social problems in Central and Eastern Europe through multiple assignments in the region. Uh, and he has also been a senior resident representative in, in, in Europe. So these are people who come from, from different directions, so to say, but with also a lot of, of practical knowledge. And um, we will now have first a presentation of the book by Anders Oslund, and then uh, Paul Thompson will make remarks on, on, um, from his point of view, and then we will have a discussion. So we're looking forward to that, and I would ask Anders to come up. Thank you very much, uh, Caroline, and uh, thank, thank you, Andrea. I'll say that it has been very nice to be working here at uh, the Atlantic Council and uh, write this book, that this is very much a, a place where you have full freedom to operate and can uh, do it as you think that it uh, should be done. I would also like to uh, thank my wife, Anna, who's uh, sitting here, who has been very patient with me when uh, we have been writing this uh, uh, book. And uh, uh, you wonder, uh, Caroline emphasized that both uh, uh, Simeon and I have been working substantially on um, Eastern Europe. Why did we take this step and move into the European uh, Union like this? Well, for a couple of reasons. The main reason is that uh, we think that the European uh, economy is in a serious crisis. We are used to deal with crisis. And uh, another reason is that we think that the big growth issues, they lie in structural reform. And we think that structural reform has been given far too little uh, attention. And we see that in Eastern Europe, a lot of these problems have been quite elegantly resolved. For example, the tax systems. Uh, and coming from Sweden myself, Northern Europe has found quite a few uh, solutions. And uh, uh, we are both following and have lived in many European countries so that we see ourselves very much as cosmopolitan Europeans though living here in, in uh, Washington uh, mainly. So what are the issues? Europe's fundamental problem, I hope you can see it over there, is uh, low growth, one less uh, percent growth than, uh, a year than the United States after 1975. And there's been no convergence. It's often talked about the golden 30 years after uh, 
the Second World War, but after that we haven't seen uh, much in Europe. The unemployment, nor is it socially good really, because unemployment is approximately twice as high as in the United States, on average. And specifically, there's too little uh, innovation. But our point very strongly in this book is that in each regard, one or usually half a dozen EU countries have done very well, have overperformed the United States. So it's not that Europe as a whole is lagging uh, behind. The point is that European countries had better learn more from, uh, from one another. Nor is it the same country that is in the lead all the time. It's different countries that have uh, uh, got ahead in uh, various regards. So our uh, message is not that the, uh, Europe should do what the United States have done, not at all. Our message is that the uh, European countries that are lagging behind in various regards should learn from the European countries that have uh, done uh, better. So let me give you this, the overall picture of uh, economic uh, growth. And you, oop, that did not work. <coughs> Uh, and you can see here that Europe essentially has not grown uh, since uh, 2007. It, uh, we have not the two last years here, but essentially Europe has caught up with 2007 now. This is a miserable uh, picture of nine uh, lost uh, years. Uh, the yellow line on top is the United States. It's not great either, but slightly better. And you can also see that rather than converging, Europe is diverging from the United States. Nobody can be satisfied uh, with, with this. And what are we seeing today? Here you have a, a summary of the European situation. Brexit, refugee and migration crisis. Euro crisis uh, has abated, but it's not over and uh, TTIP is in danger, in particular with the president-elect here in the United States, but not only. So our message is Europe needs to grow more in order to overcome the crisis. Uh, populism is if poli politicians don't do what is necessary for the good of the country. And what we have effectively seen in Europe is to a considerable extent populism. And therefore, we should not be surprised if it takes its expression in more um, uh, direct populism, as we are seeing. And of course, I'm put it here or in a, <clears throat> a graph, because you all know it. Higher growth is possible. And Europe can raise its GDP growth by 1% a year through structural reform. This is what the World Bank said in a big report in 2012. This is what McKinsey and the OECD and indeed the European Commission has been saying repeatedly. My favorite work in this regard from the European Union is uh, uh, what Klaus Feller from the European Parliament uh, has uh, uh, put out. And 
fiscal solution is not uh, uh, the stimulus is not the solution. Uh, just a few observations here. We have now seen eight years of fiscal stimulus. Many people have said that it's not enough. Well, sorry, the space is not there. Uh, the average EU uh, public debt is 87% of GDP uh, at the end of 2015. If you take the Eurozone, it becomes a few percent higher. Uh, normally 90% of GDP is said, set as a level that you should not uh, really exceed, and of course the uh, Maastricht ceiling is, uh, is 60%. And um, the obvious point, fiscal and monetary stimulus do not increase productivity. That's what needs to be, uh, be increased. But most of all, it has tried, uh, been tried and it uh, didn't uh, work. So what should be done? Here, this is no real surprise. You often hear the argument, the Juncker argument, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to be re-elected after we've done it. That's not quite true. There is no growth agenda clearly expressed. There is a, a program from when Juncker became uh, president of the European Commission in July uh, 2014. Uh, we are uh, quite close to that uh, agenda, I should emphasize, but it is not emphasized as, a, as an uh, agenda and not all uh, the points we have uh, are here. So what I want to go through with you now briefly is the seven points. Ease the fiscal burden. Second, open up the service market. Thirdly, uh, free the uh, digital trade. Reduce the fiscal and regulatory burden on labor. Fifth, improve higher education and innovation. Sixth, pension, uh, reform pensions. And seven, complete the European <coughs> Energy uh, Union. So what should be done? You know, we are all the time discussing the budget deficit. We're discussing public debt, but we're not discussing the fiscal burden. What fiscal burden uh, is right? The EU average public expenditures are 47% of GDP. Other developed countries have uh, uh, about one-tenth of GDP less public expenditure. The person who has really written on this is um, Vito Tanzi, who uh, is uh, sitting here, who was for 20 years the director of the Fiscal Affairs Department uh, at the IMF. And unfortunately, this never became IMF policy. We are seeing among the EU countries that fisc the fiscal burden varies greatly. Nine countries are in the area that I think they should be below 42% of GDP, which is uh, several percent more than the US. And uh, uh, you wonder what should be cut. And if you look more closely at it, you see a lot of things that can be cut. The average uh, enterprise subsidies in Europe is 4.3% of GDP. Cut three quarters of that. Uh, average state administration is 2% uh, of GDP more than in Britain that has the best state administration of any European country, I would argue. 
and then in particular in Northern Europe, there are uh, excessive uh, so social uh, transfers. Uh, what can also be done is to privatize and pursue uh, fully uh, competitive public procurement, something that is always touchy, where you don't have uh, uh, competition in public uh, procurement. So this is quite possible, and it would be good uh, for the, the economy to uh, accomplish it. So let me show you here what it looks in terms of the public expenditures, and you can see how uh, massively they vary from uh, uh, 35 percent to 59 percent. Finland in recent years has 59 percent of GDP in um, public expenditures for no good years. Uh, good reason. What has happened? They have had a, a triple recession after the global financial crisis. So it doesn't help you with these uh, high public expenditures. On the contrary, uh, and among the countries that have the lowest uh, public expenditures, you find Ireland that has been in crisis and has uh, gone through the crisis in flying colors. <coughs> Simply irrational to have these high public expenditures and nobody pays, uh, or hardly anybody pays attention to them. The second thing is open up service trade. Today, Roughly half of the uh, European service market uh, is missing. Uh, the EU adopted the service directive as late as 2006. The problem is that it looks like a, a Swiss cheese. It's full of loopholes. And this is the European Parliament uh, numbers that this could uh, uh, give 1.8% of GDP in extra uh, value added uh, for the European Union. So this is, in principle, quite easy. Expand and uh, uh, <coughs> reinforce the service uh, uh, directive. This is uh, uh, an increasing problem because the service sector becomes ever larger share of the total economy. And here, the European Union does not have the open market internally that uh, the US uh, has. And a very similar case is uh, digital trade. If you travel in Europe and you want to watch Netflix, for example, you need one Netflix card in each country because there is no digital market in Europe. And this is becoming an ever greater uh, problem. I should uh, emphasize here that in the Juncker program of 2014, uh, reinforced service trade, and open digital trade are both fair. So what we need to do is to push that through the commission program so that it is actually uh, uh, being done. Create jobs. Here we have many issues. Uh, EU employment rate on average is 4.3% less than in the US. And European works on average 4.9 hours less uh, <coughs> than in the US. And EU unemployment, as I've already mentioned, is uh, about twice as high as in the US. But several EU countries have as low unemployment as the US. Denmark, 
Germany, Ireland, and uh, uh, the United Kingdom. No insignificant uh, countries. So it's nothing that is a, give, a given. But let us uh, look slightly closer what it looks like. Employment rate, this is not unemployment, but employment rate, varies massively from just over half the population in Greece to up to 75% of the population in the, uh, Sweden. Obviously, uh, European countries can learn a lot from each other here, but then I'll get, give you a contrarian picture. This is how many uh, hours people worked, and who works the most in Europe? The Greeks, because the, uh, the, mark, uh, <clears throat> the labor market is so regulated that the employers want their workers to work as hard as possible and not hire more workers. While in the Scandinavian countries and Germany, you have the opposite. You need to have a job for various social benefits and also for lower taxes in the family, but you don't want to work many hours. This is a matter of regulation. It's not a matter of taxation. It's not a matter of uh, uh, anything that is given. And indeed, it has not been like this historically. In the 1950s, the French worked more than the Americans. So reduce burdens on labor. What I find most surprising that nobody uh, discusses, it is the massive taxation of Labor. Labor is ta uh, taxed both through income and payroll taxes, while capital is increasingly less taxed than labor. Why? Because labor can't run away. Capital can run away. And after this, people complain about inequality. Well, no surprise. Treat labor decently with regard to taxation. And how do you do that? You cut labor taxation. You can't increase uh, taxation on uh, uh, capital uh, much. I think that this is the big thing, slash the labor tax wedge. Then improve labor market regulation. There are many topics there. And improve education, vocational trading. Uh, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands are outstanding when it comes to vocational training. That's something that the U.S. needs to learn much more of, but also northern, western, and southern uh, Europe need to learn from the vocational training in the center of uh, Europe. Facilitate women's work. Northern Europe is doing very well in this regard. Also Eastern Europe, while southern Europe is doing uh, very little. And, of course, the big theme, absorb uh, immigrants uh, uh, better. Something that is not much noticed either, that is uh, uh, the situation in uh, education. S Southern Europe has a serious problem with too little basic education. So uh, uh, Portugal, for example, has only 45% of the population, uh, of the labor force, uh, completing uh, <coughs> Uh, secondary school, uh, high school, while the normal rate is uh, uh, about 75%. No surprise, 
that you have a lot of unemployment in southern Europe when uh, higher education is lacking and vocational uh, uh, secondary education is uh, lagging and vocational education also. For some reason, uh, very little attention is being given to this. I should also say that the quality of education in Europe varies greatly, but we now know uh, thanks to the PISA uh, <coughs> studies, and uh, I, uh, my wife and I happened to be in Finland a couple of years ago when the PISA uh, results were uh, published, and it was almost national sorrow in Finland that Estonia had beaten Finland as the, the uh, country in Europe with the highest quality of uh, education. All these uh, studies do improve what is happening. And then my fifth point, or our fifth point, uh, uh, is uh, improve higher education and the con <coughs> continent. Uh, something that is not much noticed is uh, that continental EU uh, uh, universities are lagging behind. None of the 25 best universities in the, uh, in the world, according to the uh, Shanghai and Times Higher Education list, is located on the European continent. There are two countries that have all of the best universities, the United States, no surprise, and Britain. While in continental Europe, you have about uh, six to eight universities at uh, this level, and uh, none of them is higher than 29th on the either of these uh, uh, lists. So uh, higher education reform should be very high on the structural reform uh, agenda for, uh, for, for uh, Europe. And um, too little uh, financing on research and development. 3% of GDP is decided, half a dozen European countries are there, but the average is 1.7%. And the big thing is innovative ecosystems. The European system as it is today allows very little venture financing and much of what exists is public. This is a broader point about uh, liberalization and uh, of uh, capital markets and rendering them uh, more, more effective. Uh, and then, reform pensions. This is an old, well-known debate. debate. This is essentially the World Bank report uh, uh, from 94 on pension reform uh, that holds well. Uh, public pensions are excessive. It uh, should be reduced slightly, but the main thing is to improve uh, the incentives, to improve uh, the incentives uh, to, say, uh, uh, <clears throat> to save. And here I think that there is one wonderful model, the Dutch model, which is uh, uh, the best functioning based on very strong occupational uh, uh, pensions. And if we look upon pensions overall in Europe, the <coughs> As you see on all these graphs, uh, we have lots of them in the book, they show massive differences uh, uh, between uh, uh, di different countries. And Holland, 
with 7% uh, of uh, GDP in uh, public pension costs. It's arguably the best pension system in terms of what it provides its citizens with. It's not the question of how much the public costs, it is what you get out of it, how efficient uh, the pension uh, system is that is central. And then the final uh, point, complete the EU energy union. This is not such a big thing like uh, uh, getting the digital or service market uh, going, but it's something that uh, uh, should be undertaken. So the conclusions we have in the book is that all these uh, reforms are perfectly possible. They uh, can and should be done. Uh, the evidence that they are possible is that there are normally half a dozen EU countries who have uh, undertaken them uh, uh, very well. And this makes an important point. <coughs> EU regulations are no hindrance. People blame Brussels because it's nicer to blame Brussels than yourself. The problem lies with national governments. So if something good would come out of this current crisis of the European Union, it would be that the national governments cannot blame Brussels because it's obviously too weak. It can't impose its rules, and therefore the guilt lies with the national governments. So this is our big message. It's the national governments that need to carry out uh, most of these reforms, apart from the trade reforms. The trade reforms, that's the, the task of... Uh, uh, of the European uh, Union. And if this is done, just to remind you, this is the broad consensus that uh, uh, the EU ca countries can raise their growth by 1% a year uh, through structural reforms. And note, I did not use the word austerity here because austerity has nothing to do with it. The question is to build a society that works better for all. Thank you. <clears throat> Afternoon and uh, many thanks for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to to come here, in particular, you know, at the occasion. Anas and I have uh, been working together for more than 25 years, and uh, I could think of nobody else uh, who has, uh, no, not 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 least on 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 Eastern Europe. Uh, 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 the insight and the understanding of the political economy of Europe than, than he has. So it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. This is a very, uh, very uh, well-timed and relevant book. And uh, uh, I do indeed think that structural reform and growth is the is, is overarching issue facing Europe at, at this stage. I had a few slides. Uh, 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 sorry, we'll Okay, so it's... Uh, 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 I, I want to, to first sort of try to make the, 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 the macroeconomic context on what, why I think it's absolutely uh, critical. And I'm uh, going to focus first on, on, on the Eurozone and, uh, 
and then uh, go beyond the, uh, the, 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 the Eurozone. Uh, so it is, uh, uh, first, the short-term outlook for the Eurozone is actually not that bad. We are we have revising growth uh, up, uh, the recovery is on track. Uh, uh, we have something like 1.7% growth for the Eurozone as a whole this year. But, of course, the performance by individual country is very, very different. Uh, with Germany uh, powering ahead and uh, uh, no, the other end, Italy uh, 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 still in uh, no, very well below the, the pre-crisis level of, uh, of, of GDP per capita and uh, 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 overall the Eurozone uh, uh, on, on, only uh, uh, having recovered uh, to a limited extent from the pre-crisis uh, 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 level. Now, as I said, the short-term outlook is not bad, but what really is a matter for concern is that the medium-term outlook is quite lackluster, to put it mildly. It is, uh, it is. Uh, 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 we we assume uh, potential growth for the for the for a euro area of some one and a half percent, and uh, 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 the implication is that for a number of the countries that are on a particular strain, uh, 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 and 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 uh, 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 with with also you know. Uh, some of them have had programs with the IMF, as you know. Uh, as of you know, looking forward from today, it will take Greece another 21 years uh, to reduce unemployment to the pre-crisis level, level. Italy 12, Portugal 10, Spain 6. It's just an illustration of the tensions that are in the system and even under our baseline. Our baseline will, uh, will, uh, will, will uh, 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 persist and clearly, given, given the, the political situation in some of these countries, uh, 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 given the, uh, uh, the, the, the pressures, uh, uh, or the sort of signs of disintegration in parts of, 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 of Europe, it's, uh, 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 this is, of course, something that is, is, is worrisome. Uh, I shall not go much into the detail of, of, of that. I, I think it's a combination of two factors. One is there's clearly some crisis legacies still. There are crisis legacies uh, with very high, uh, high structural unemployment, uh, uh, very low inflation, and high debt, uh, 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 and, and still anemic investments in, 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 in many, many countries. Uh, be, you know, all to various degree, crisis legacies that continue to, uh, to, uh, to, to be a down on growth. We have six countries uh, in the Eurozone now with debt above 100% of GDP, uh, at or, or above 100% of, uh, of, of, of GDP. Now, in addition to these crisis legacies, there are some more fundamental uh, uh, long-term structural issues. Uh, uh, and i getting to what I think is why, why uh, why uh, uh, Anna's book is, 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 is so uh, uh, timely. I'll just no, I'm not going to give you all, uh, uh, all the different uh, ways one, one can analyze the problem. I'll just give you uh, one or two examples. This is, I'm comparing here Italy and Germany since the adoption of the Euro crisis. And you see that manufacturing wages in Italy 
has just basically one-on-one -on -one tracked those in Germany since the euro adoption. This is manufacturing wages in euro terms in Italy and uh, Germany. Now, because of, uh, uh, of, uh, of differences in, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in labor productivity, uh, we have had a steadily widening of, uh, you know, if you want, the competitiveness gap between Germany and Italy since euro, euro adoption. Steadily widening year by year to up to about 30% from wherever it was at euro adoption. It's uh, uh, that points to that this is fundamental underlying problems that uh, that not just a question of 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 of, of the crisis legacies, but failure to 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 uh, to have uh, uh, you know we want a, a structural con, uh, uh, con convergence. Let me uh, uh, just give you a, a sort of a. a, a the same from, from, from a different perspective, bringing in some other countries. This shows the real exchange rate before the crisis, from euro adoption until the crisis. And we see that we have real appreciation in most countries, except in, uh, in Germany, where you had a, a real depreciation. This next one decomposes it on the, uh, what is the, due to nominal exchange rate changes and what is due, what's due to changes in unit uh, labor cost. And uh, uh, the improvement in Germany as, as harsh reforms, of course, are uh, striking. Now, this then shows what happens since the crisis. Uh, since the crisis, you have had a significant correction in, uh, in, uh, in Greece, in Ireland, in Portugal, uh, in Spain, all on the, on the, no, uh, who had programs with a, with a fund and a, you know, Spain had, had a program with, a, with, a, with, a, with its European partners. Uh, you do not have this, uh, this, uh, this adjustment in Italy and uh, you will see that the adjustment has mainly taken place in these countries that were on the program through uh, large uh, 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 changes in, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in unit uh, 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 labor cost. It is uh, uh, it's uh, and note again that Italy has actually not changed uh, 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 that much. All sort of reflections of, of, of the sort of structural tensions inside uh, uh, the eurozone. I give you just sort of a snapshot of, of, of the things that we are, you know, of, of how one can look at, at, at the issue. I think the next one is, is particularly interesting. This, this is some work we have done on the German supply chain. Uh, the, the, to the left, it shows export to Germany. It's, uh, you could have one on imports, it's more or less the same. And the next, uh, the second one showed German foreign direct investments. And note the direction. So we have European monetary integration running north-south. Because of the history of, uh, of post-war uh, Europe, uh, Cold War, and, uh, but we have the real integration going east-west. Uh, from Germany and German supply chains. Uh, and, and that, too, uh, you know, is a picture of the challenges uh, 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 facing uh, uh, Europe, uh, at, at structural challenges uh, uh, facing, face, facing Europe. So, I'll, so let, before I get to Eastern Europe, let me just, let me just uh, uh, make a sort of 
couple of points to draw the, the, the conclusions as I see it and, and the relevance to, to, to Anna's uh, book. I, uh, I would probably not be as strong as Anna's is on the role of fiscal policy. Uh, clearly, there is, a, there is a problem in that, in, if you, uh, that the distribution of the fiscal space and the output gaps in Europe is, you know, is, is totally screwed. The countries with fiscal space, like Germany, have no output gap, where the countries with large output gap, like Italy, have no fiscal space. Uh, now remember, and this is uh, you know, speaking to audience like this, I always struck with how often people forget that. We are inside a currency union that is not a political union. This is, this is the key problem, and this is the overarching issues again and again in what we are dealing with. This is not a political union. There is nothing, nothing here that would you know, oblige or call on countries that has the fiscal space to build bridges in countries that do not have the fiscal space. There is no obligation. There's a common currency. Uh, uh, there's a common inflation target. But there is no common fiscal policy. There is no fiscal, uh, uh, fiscal union. So, so policy conclusion that seems obvious to people who are outside the, the Eurozone are not obvious if you are inside the currency union. Now, I do think that still that uh, clearly the countries that have fiscal space, uh, uh, like Germany, needs to use that fiscal space. Uh, we also need, at the same time, to push more for central fiscal spending, uh, like the Juncker plan that Anna's referred to uh, 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 before, for sure. But we also need, and here I agree with, uh, with Anna's, uh, you didn't use the word, but you implied it. There is clearly a significant moral hazard risk inside a construction that is not a political union. There is clearly signs of, you no know, with, uh, with accommodating policies, that some countries are delaying fundamental structural reforms. So I think it's critical for a policy mix that is more supportive of growth. I think it's critical that one do the structural reforms needed to boost potential growth, but also critical not only because of the direct economic impact, but to build the political consensus that will enable Europe to use all its four policy variables. You know, monetary policy, financial sector policy, fiscal policy, there's a role for everything, and structural reforms. But it's not going to happen unless some countries that need to do much more structural reforms do, this, do it and thereby create the, the, the political space for, for other countries to support the more, no, continue supporting QE, supporting a more active role for fiscal policy. I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, uh, confidence, a mutual confidence in, 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 in Europe need to be strengthened, not least through these actions to embrace more front-loaded structural reform. And here I agree also with, with, uh, with Anna's. It's not a question of pointing fingers to, to Brussels. It, it, these, are, these are political willingness in the individual member states to spend political capital on difficult structural reforms. That is, that is what matters. A couple of uh, comments on Eastern Europe, which uh, uh, I, I uh, want to show you just a few things that we, we, we have been uh, working on. Clearly, Eastern Europe is doing quite well right now. 
the uh, basically output is, is, is back to pre-crisis level, relatively robust, uh, uh, actually unemployment rates are now below uh, pre-crisis level, robust uh, growth, uh, but it is, it is masking the fact that in our view, potential growth has actually basically halved compared to the, to the pre-crisis level. And uh, meaning that these countries cannot sustain the current growth rates without this kind of structural reforms that Anna is talking about, without, in, without seeing renewed sort of external imbalances, if you, if you want to put it uh, uh, like, like that. Let me just show you an illustration of, 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 the, of the problem. This is a, this, we basically taken all the countries in Eastern, and, and, uh, uh, in Eastern Europe and shown how do they compare to Korea. Korea being sort of the, you know, the gold standard of, of, of strong emerging markets uh, growth for decades. And you will see that they actually tracked Korea very, very well until the crisis. Uh, uh, but since the crisis, it has changed. That they are all uh, deviating with a significant slowdown in, uh, in, in uh, 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 potential uh, growth. There are a number of factors explaining that. It's, uh, this is uh, you know, the, our, our, our potential growth uh, estimates and the decomposition of it. This, this basically shows what is the change in potential growth from before the crisis and to after the crisis. So the change from before the crisis to after the crisis. And you can see basically all of them, that's the dot, have, is, are negative. So that potential growth is significantly lower than it was before the crisis. And then we ask the question, you know, what, uh, what, what is accounting for it? And you can see that, that overwhelmingly it's accounted for by TFP. And, 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 to provide, and, and I think that provides the context of what, what, uh, what Anas is, 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 uh, and his co-authors is talk, talking about, is if you want to put it uh, uh, no, very simplistically, that the first 25 years, there were a lot of low-hanging fruit. You close the many enterprises that are negative, you know, that are value subtractors, and GDP will go up. Uh, uh, it is uh, it is clearly many low-hanging fruit. Question of reshuffling, you know, uh, uh, labor and, and to some extent capital to more product, productive uh, uses, and, and and you have an, an improvement in uh, uh, productivity. <coughs> the scope for these easy cats of gains in productivity are basically sort of gone. In the next the next 25 years, for for Eastern Europe to have have the kind of pro productivity growth that. Uh, uh, they had in the past, we need to have fundamental structural reforms, but much more focused on improving institutions, improving governance. Uh, my last slide is an illustration of, of some analytical work that we're just uh, finishing. That slow, that basically here, uh, it shows for, for, for these variables on, on, the, on the left, uh, <clears throat> with all different parts of the institutions, governance, uh, 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 issues, we, are, we, we, have, we have measured how far are each of these countries on each of these property rights legal system from, from, the European, from the European average, from the European norm. And then uh, 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 we have some you know, economic uh, uh, tests of, of, uh, of, of what can, can moving to the European norms, what can that produce in terms of, 
of, of, of, of growth for, for these countries and we come up with, with some priorities and, and, and you can I mean two, two things. One, as I said, it stresses that the next generation of reforms are much more complex, much more complicated, politically much more difficult. Governance, improving legal systems, uh, uh, business regulations. Uh, it's not just a question of reshuffling existing factors of, of, of production. And secondly, of course, it shows, which I think is a point that, that, that Anna's keep on emphasizing also, you cannot, uh, you know, it depends on what country you're in. The priorities changes from country to country. And that again is, 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 is very, uh, very uh, obvious from this. So overall, I think this is a extremely timely book. I think it's uh, the key challenges for different reasons for both the Eurozone for, and for Eastern, for Eastern Europe is indeed uh, uh, to accelerate uh, 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 structural reform. So I, this is a very, very uh, timely contribution to the debate. Thank you very much. that these work? Yeah, they work now. Great, thank you. Thank you both Anders and Paul for, for these um, uh, uh, two uh, views on how we should stimulate uh, um, uh, growth in, in Europe. I must, uh, before we start, I must, I must really recommend uh, this book. It's a pretty easy read for somebody who is a generalist. I mean, I'm not an economist uh, in my daily work. It's an easy read and it's, it's also um, very interesting because it, it gives really the multifaceted view of Europe that you seldom get here. Because when you talk about Europe here or the EU, it, there's a, there are a few countries that are mentioned, uh, some of them because they are big, some of them because they are in a particularly bad crisis and occasionally some country, random country, because it has done something that has sort of, it's worth noting. When you, when you read this book, you really see um, uh, why we, we have the motto in, in, in the EU, which is unity in diversity. Because there is a great, great diversity in, in Europe, and, and that's, that's not for, often something that is not, not really, really noted. And the interesting thing is also that there is, as Anders pointed out, there is not one champion. That is not, there is not one country that's doing everything right. Uh, but you can, you can see uh, most amazing uh, facts sometimes. I noticed something like on, on I, I don't remember if it was on Cyprus or on Malta that had pretty low um, uh, expenditures on, in healthcare, but had uh, a very low mortality, <coughs> child mortality, for example, and, and, and long life uh, expectancy. And so you wonder how are they doing it, you know, uh, compared to other countries that spend spend much more. So it, it, it's really um, an insight in, in Europe um, uh, uh, which goes beyond uh, the, the headlines or, or uh, the reports uh, we, we normally see. Um, having said that, I, I also uh, want to commend the book, of course, coming from European institutions, that it, it sort of um, is, is really a pro-European book. Um, and uh, that I, I take comfort in that, uh, particularly uh, in the situation where we are today, 
of, of uh, some kind of uncertainty that we are feeling around us. Um, uh, hopefully that will, will, will change. Uh, but um, I wanted to start out with a question to Anders uh, before I open the floor on that, that Anders, you make um, a very strong case for the European Union uh, and particularly for the single market because you want that the, the single market should be complemented by the digital single market and that we, we should um, in, uh, sort of create a single service market as well um, uh, that you feel it's not really implemented yet. And that is, of course, in stark contrast to the proposals we got this weekend uh, from the president-elect who uh, uh, suggested that <coughs> Europeans would not only be happier but also better off if we sort of each one gone, went on our own way, sort of we, we kind of split up the European Union and we became nation states and, and each one would be able to fend better for itself. Um, and I wanted to um, ask you what, what's your view on that? Uh, if you're in a big country like the United States, you don't see how important free trade is. If you are in a small country like Denmark or Sweden, then you realize how important uh, the free trade is and access to, to a bigger uh, market. I heard uh, former Finnish Prime Minister Eskwa, who used to be on the board of Nokia in uh, Moscow last week, and he got the nasty uh, question why Nokia had failed. And he said that Nokia succeeded because of a single market, and Nokia failed because there's no single market for digital goods. And in the 2000s, uh, mobile phones increasingly became uh, digital uh, goods, uh, software rather than hardware. So, uh, and I think that this is very well illustrating the, 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 the uh, situation. And, uh, Similarly, we are now seeing that uh, Europe is uh, losing out when it comes to the digital uh, market, much uh, in, more, uh, in more general terms. Uh, Google, Apple, uh, etc. are all US companies, while Nokia and Ericsson ruled the world with mobile phones in the, in the 1990s. And I think that this is a very uh, cl clear uh, illustration. The smaller a country it is, by and large, the stronger it supports uh, 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 free trade. But of course, this is also generally true, and people don't see it in a big country like the United States, and less in a relatively big country like uh, the, the United Kingdom. And uh, more on the macro side, what uh, uh, was striking in the early 90s, Europe went through massive currency crisis. And now we have heard from American macroeconomists during the global financial crisis that Europe would be better off with independent currencies. No, thank you. We don't want the currency crisis of the early 90s. So then you wonder why are so many people in London City uh, in favor of exchange rates, uh, free exchange rates? Well, because then you can make money on currency crisis, which is uh, a big business for hedge funds. That's not a very good business for uh, uh, economic welfare. Thank you. Paul, do you have uh, something to add on that latter part? Uh, I mean, no. uh, you... you um, we have the, the Eurozone that is um, a limited part of 
of the European of the European Union. Would uh, would you say that the situation would have been different if if uh, uh, all the EU members were um, all member states were members of the of the eurozone? Well, I, I, the point I tried to make is that you know uh, clearly the euro the eurozone assumed. Uh, uh, a structural and political convergence uh, that has not yet happened, and uh, 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 we 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 see the, the the strain from that. We see the high, very high structural unemployment in a, in a, particular in the in, in the south. And uh, uh, you know, I am I am confident that uh, 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 through a gradual process. Uh, uh, these countries will adopt the structural reforms that, that to, uh, to to make it work, and uh, 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 no, which was in the first place while while this was adopted to to, to promote the structural and, pro and political yeah. con convergence. But it's clearly provided, proving more painful than uh, than uh, than than expected. Uh, uh, but I would uh, know. Uh, one of the things I always say when I speak outside uh, the Europe is, please do not underestimate the European resolve to make it work. Uh, 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 yep. uh, so, uh, uh, no, I, uh, I'm confident that it will work, yeah. Okay, so I think we um, open up the floor. I'm sure there are many, many questions. Please. <laughs> um, at the beginning, uh, you had a list of problems with Europe, and number one on your list was Brexit. You then figured not to talk about it. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, in light of what you said, uh, one of the big arguments for Brexit, effectively, uh, is that unchanged from all these EU regulations, there could be a surge of growth in the UK. I'm not uh, calculated on it, of course, but uh, uh, if you take the cost of free trade, that is uh, uh, assessed uh, to, to be a significant uh, cost. Uh, and uh, whatever trade agreement that would come about, Britain will have less weight as a single entity. And if you take small countries, it would be all uh, all, all the worse uh, for them. So free trade uh, is a cost. Uh, Britain alone will not get a better trade agreement when the European uh, Union uh, as, a, as a whole. And the European Union as a whole has been better at getting <coughs> trade agreements than the United States by far in the, in the last um, a, a, a decade. Regulations, as you rightly point out, 
it is not a big problem. Much of this, what we call regulation, is international standardization. And the question is simply, what standard do you uh, adopt? Concretely, what kind of electrical plugs, etc., do you use? Of course, the Brits use a separate kind of plugs in any case. But uh, you have a lot of standardization of uh, that nature, but clearly facilitates uh, uh, trade. So uh, you would then have uh, more specifications for more different markets if you break up the European Union and the uh, single market. So the, the sheer regulation of the European Union is uh, not really there. And I would even argue the opposite. Uh, take the service directive that has not been implemented. Uh, uh, one country that is uh, violating <coughs> that uh, particularly egregiously is Germany. Uh, you can't go to an ordinary shop in Germany on Sundays because an unholy alliance of uh, churches and uh, trade unions have decided that uh, citizens, uh, people are not allowed to shop on Sundays. While in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe and uh, uh, Britain, Ireland, uh, shops are perfectly open uh, uh, on, on Sundays. So there are certain countries that are violating. So I'm more concerned about the uh, European Commission not being sufficiently strong in imposing uh, uh, its uh, uh, standards. So, uh, and there's, uh, Britain uh, carried out all the Thatcher reforms while being a member of uh, the European Union. There has been a, a lot of talk about the social charter, but it really doesn't matter. You have all the freedom to do all the good structural reforms if you want to do that inside. I think it will be much more difficult for Britain to do those uh, reforms outside of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the European uh, uh, Union uh, with stronger populist uh, pressures. So I really don't understand uh, the economic arguments as you suspected. Okay, please. Uh, Stanley Cobra, I'd like to address the question of austerity. And even in the United States, we're going to see austerity. Um, if you look at President Obama's budget, discretionary spending, both defense and non-defense, go down quite a bit. If you project it out to, say, tw um, 2023. Why? More payments on the interest as the Fed normalizes interest rates. And people like me will be collecting our retirement benefits. Mm -hmm. Medicare, Social Security, I'm part of the baby boom generation. The same pressures are going to affect Europe. If these pressures force the discretionary spending here to go down, why wouldn't they have a similar impact on Europe? Is that you? Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, it's a... Uh, uh, I mean, there, there clearly are uh, a number of, of, of long-term sort of uh, structural uh, changes uh, from, uh, from you know, uh, pension reforms and, 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 and others uh, that could, uh, you know, if, if not dealt with, would, uh, would force uh, uh, no, such a, a, a contraction in, in, 
in, in discretionary uh, spending. I think that it's, uh, uh, I mean, on, on the whole issue of austerity, and I'm glad that we sort of did not end up, end up there. Uh, uh, no, Europe has, Europe, for the, if a Eurozone unemployment is right now uh, 10%, and our, uh, our estimate, uh, you know, uh, to the best of our estimate, something like 7-8% of that is structural. And a couple of percent is, is cyclical. So, uh, 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 no, it is, uh, uh, so if, you, if you look at the aggregate, uh, that seemed to suggest that there is limited, limited space for a more expansionary signal, uh, fiscal stance for less austerity if you want to, uh, to promote growth and bring down uh, on, on unemployment. The, the key issue is what I mentioned before, the distribution. That, uh, 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 that the countries that have the, f the fiscal space are not the one uh, that were the, were the unemployment and, and the output gaps uh, are. And what, what I, 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 so I, uh, uh, I do not see, and I said you know, six of, of, of these countries, larger countries, have you know, debt that's above 100% of, of GDP. So I do not see uh, any dramatic change there. I think on the margins, one, one can ease up on austerity. Uh, but, but if we talk about the, the gross challenges that, 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 that are underlying this book, I think that has very little to do with austerity. I agree with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Anas on, on, on that. It is structural. It is, it is, it is structural. And, uh, Let me elaborate here. Uh, the U.S. has gone from a budget deficit of 10% of GDP in 2009 to currently 2.5% of GDP. Europe has gone through a similar uh, cut in a, a budget deficit. It's about 2.5% of GDP now. So we are in perfect shape. What happens to the economic growth? It has uh, recovered as we would have uh, expected. So uh, the fiscal problem has become uh, much uh, uh, less. And um, uh, I don't remember the numbers now exactly, but Sweden went from about 80% of GDP in public debt, 93, to 40% of uh, uh, GDP in public debt, 2007. This was uh, a period of wonderful growth. Uh, first, you cut public expenditure, then you cut uh, uh, taxes. Uh, uh, what is important for growth is that you deregulate. What uh, give, uh, gave a massive growth in Sweden was the deregulation of the retail sector, uh, trade and, uh, and uh, uh, banking. So uh, austerity, I mean, I prefer to say fiscal uh, discipline, uh, it has uh, to be maintained. Uh, it has, uh, stimulus has very little to do with economic growth. It is if you are in a real crisis, 2008-2009. So what uh, uh, President Obama has pursued is really an ideal Keynesian policy. You stimulate heavily in early on when you really need it, and then you do away with this uh, excessive de deficit relatively fast. It could have been done slightly faster, but this was... Uh, uh, pretty much uh, as uh, the textbook uh, case, which we rarely see. Normally the politicians are too late, both to uh, expand the deficit and to, uh, to cut uh, 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 the deficit. 
And uh, the big problem in the US when it comes to uh, uh, expenditures generally is, of course, healthcare. That it's 17% uh, of GDP, both public and private, while Europe has 9% of GDP in uh, 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 public healthcare and 2% uh, a year and uh, 2% two year <laughs> uh, longer life expectancy. So it's the healthcare system that is a, a, the big uh, problem in U.S. public and private finances and uh, generally welfare and, uh, and efficiency. So now we have a long list of, of speakers. I've no, tried to note you all. I've noted you also. So you, sir, here. Thank you very much, uh, Vito Tanzi, former IMF, long time ago. You know. Uh, I have uh, one observation and one uh, kind of question. The observation is that uh, <coughs> I think I, I must have been working in the fiscal area from all angles as a university professor, a, a graduate student, before I heard the word fiscal space. You know, I still don't know what it means. I have no idea what fiscal space means. It's used all the time. The IMF puts out papers telling us that countries have 100% of GDP fiscal space, you know, a recent paper, and I have no idea what it means. You know, that's uh, the observation. It's just like austerity. I don't know what austerity means. You know, France is spending, the government, French government is spending 55% of GDP. The Italian government is spending 50% of GDP, and we talk about austerity. I have no idea what this means. But, uh, <laughs> but it's an observation. The question that I have is more difficult and is directed uh, to Anders. You know, I, made a, I read the, paper, the book before it was published. You know, I got a draft, and I made a comment to him. But I don't know whether I have not read the book now. I don't know whether it was taken into account, but it was not taken into account in the presentation today, which is income distribution. You know, If you look at the US, and you, instead of comparing the US with, the, with Europe or with European countries, you compare counties in the US with the European countries. You find counties in the US where there's been no growth for 30 or 40 years where life expectancy is 20 years more, less than in the more advanced counties. So the question, you know, shouldn't we really be paying more attention to the distribution within countries? And, and not just the Gini, but within the countries, you know, when we make this comparison. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, but we avoided uh, discussing a comparison U.S. and Europe. This is very much uh, a comparison between European countries. So we did not. Uh, we did not go uh, much into uh, the equality discussion very much because it's uh, infected by Thomas uh, uh, Piketty's uh, book uh, uh, Capital, which I do not believe much in. I, uh, what we looked up on the EU statistics for uh, inequality, and uh, there's not much increase in inequality in Europe from uh, in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we thought that this was too important an observation to uh, be on one or two pages in the book. So we skipped it. 
because uh, if one goes into that saying the thicket is wrong, one has to do it uh, uh, more uh, thoroughly. I think, uh, uh, as you suggest, that this is very much uh, a US uh, issue, and that the, the problems in the US are massive. I was uh, uh, just at this uh, American Economic Association uh, conference in Chicago two weeks ago. And one of the big themes there is the new increased uh, uh, mortality since 2000 in uh, Appalachians, in particular, in uh, 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 Middle America, uh, the Trump uh, uh, countries, and the three causes of increased uh, deaths. Besides your um, uh, question, but it's quite interesting. It's um, uh, opioid uh, death, uh, overdose of, of drugs, uh, it's uh, alcohol, and it's suicides. So what we see here is a truly miserable situation so that overall American mortality, particularly for women, particularly for white women, has increased from uh, 2000. This is not true of Hispanics, it's not true of blacks, and it's less true uh, of uh, 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 white men. So I think that this, uh, but this is quite a different uh, area than we are trying uh, to do here, but it's very interesting. We have a little comment here on fiscal space as well. Yeah, let me just say that, uh, you know, I, I of course <laughs> understand that if we, uh, Oh, if we are in the world of, of professors and academics and sort of these things uh, need to be uh, 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 narrowed down much more carefully. But I do think in the world of, of policymakers, when I go to Italy and say they have no fiscal space and go to Germany and say they have fiscal space, they know what we're talking about. So uh, uh, I do think in terms of, 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 of <coughs> messaging for, for, for policymakers, I think this is not just the kind of language we use. So. Okay, thank you. As I have a very, very long list, I may ask you, may I ask you to um, have very brief questions so we can move forward. So, sir, it's you here. Thank you. Two quick questions. Can there be truly a European digital market without a European common language, uh, which does not exist? Uh, and Sorry, I didn't understand. Without, common, without language. A common language. Mm. Uh, and the second question, and that's related to the graphs on uh, east, west, north, south, mm. uh, supply chains in Germany, and a much more interesting graph on uh, manufacturing uh, 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 prices in Italy mm -hmm. and Germany. Uh, how much should we believe that the euro has actually slowed down the process of structural reforms in the eurozone? Could you repeat the question? How much should we believe that the euro has actually slowed down the process of structural reforms in the countries in the eurozone? Hmm? Yeah, if I start. Clearly, you can have a digital market. English is the general language. And if necessary, you use English. But I'm not a tech person, so I should not get deeper into that. But I don't think that's a serious concern. On, I'll give answer on your second question, even if it was directed to Paul first. I think that this is quite an unusual situation we have seen in uh, after the global financial crisis in Europe 
but there has been extremely little structural reforms. Why? Uh, because of massive monetary stimulus. Because people, uh, countries have not felt the, uh, the need to do reforms. I lived in Sweden during the crisis in the early 90s. Uh, I lived at Oxford when uh, Thatcher came to power in uh, uh, 79. On both occasions, one felt that this is a massive crisis. And uh, Asa Lindbeck, the dean of Swedish economists, reported in his memoirs uh, that uh, in 92 he was asked uh, by journalists, will Sweden survive? This was the kind of crisis there was. Here people did not ask, will <coughs> Europe survive or will any country survive? It was in only, will the Euro survive? Which is much less a problem. So uh, uh, the massive stimulus that we saw took away the sense of crisis. And I don't think that is a good uh, thing. Uh, basically, I think that Hayek had a, a point where, when arguing that uh, 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 the uh, cleansing crisis of capitalism is something that is necessary. You don't want to abolish the business cycle altogether. Not only that you can't do it, but you need to have a certain cycle of, uh, of uh, cleansing. Then, of course, we don't want to ha have it too brutal, but uh, something there is needed. And I think that Europe has simply become too soft, and it's uh, and Euro is part of it. Yeah, I uh, uh, I think it's uh, the the picture on 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 structural reforms in the Euro and the, is sort of in, I would say a bit more nuanced one. <laughs> uh, it's uh, that's your job. <laughs> we. Uh, uh, you know, clearly there are some countries where we see evidence of, of such moral hazard uh, problems. Uh, you know, there are countries uh, that have benefited greatly from uh, QE and seen a dramatic decline in, uh, in, in, in interest and have spent that interest, you know, spent this temporary decline in interest on pensions and other permanent. Uh, permanent. And that's, uh, that's clearly, uh, you know, it's not good if you want to put it like that. There are other countries now, like uh, one that comes to mind is Spain that has done significant structural reforms, uh, 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 important labor market reforms, and that is you know, performing well. It mm. still has quite a long way to go, but has seen a significant sustained reduction in, in structural unemployment, and, and we are <coughs> continuing to, to, to project relatively robust growth in, in, in Spain. So I think it's a, it's a nuanced picture. I think what we need to do looking forward is we need to find ways of sort of incentivizing structural reforms uh, uh, and there are different ideas uh, in, in, in Brussels for how to do that uh, but clearly there is some some link uh, uh, on, on the uh, no, on the scope for uh, I'm trying to find another word than fiscal space Vita but uh, ah. uh, there's some 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 sort of no uh, link uh, between uh, 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 to what extent one will give uh, uh, countries more room here you have it uh, to, uh, to to expand fiscally uh, if they undertake structural reforms uh, 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 at, at the same time I think it's a kind of these are the kind of things uh, uh, one uh, uh, one 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 need uh, so one can one can improve the the incentives one can be reduce the disincentives the moral hazard uh, problem but I would not uh, 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 and I I am, I am completely convinced this 
will require that Europe fires on all the four engines I said, uh, you know, uh, monetary policy. Clearly, monetary policy needs to be expansionary, given, given, given uh, that we have inflation still well below 2%. It is, uh, uh, there is, uh, they, they, I, I think this is, this is obvious. I recognize that comes with potential potential more hazard problem, but that's not a criticism of monetary policy, that's a criticism of, 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 of other policies. Uh, 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 so one, one need monetary policy to be accommodating, one need a fiscal policy where the countries that have the, the space use it, and uh, 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 one need a bit more centralized uh, uh, fiscal expansion a la, a la Juncker plan. One need uh, to complete the banking union, that is critical. Uh, to sort of sever the link between sovereign risk and, 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 and the, the performance of the banking system. And one need above all, above all, the structural reforms. And uh, as I said before, to get a country like Germany to support the, the, the accommodating monetary policy, uh, to, 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 to support a more active role in fiscal policy, Germany needs to see that other countries spend political capital on difficult Reforms. This is the only way of moving forward. That uh, that the sort of uh, it's 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 balanced. Okay. So, Mr. Ambassador, I, I have seen you. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador of Bulgaria. Congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, how do you see the future of the eurozone in terms of uh, further enlargement? And uh, what uh, would your advice be to the countries which are outside the zone? Do they need to, to speed up the process of uh, accession? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Thank you. Was it for me or for Anna? <laughs> uh, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. I, uh, you can say that the obvious uh, country that should join the Euro is Bulgaria. Because you have a, a currency uh, board in any case, and you have a fixed exchange rate. I was working in Latvia during the financial crisis 2008-2010 with Prime Minister Valdis Dombrovskis, and I was adamantly against devaluation then unlike uh, Paul, and uh, <coughs> you have no official position, I presume. <laughs> and uh, the reason for the crisis in the Baltic countries, that was then massive, it was not bad in Bulgaria comparatively, was that uh, the Baltic countries were cut off from uh, uh, ECB, uh, European Central Bank liquidity. And the reason why they were cut off was that they were dependent on Swedish and Dan uh, one Danish bank. Bulgaria, was not dependent on banks that were outside of the euro area. You had, uh, were happy with 30% uh, uh, Greek banks, which had perfect access to ECB liquidity, and uh, also is it on a credit, Italian banks also, that, uh, that you have. So Bulgaria managed uh, to uh, avoid that, but for the Bolts, the conclusion was 
we want into the Eurozone as fast as possible. We are not prepared to take this uh, uh, blow again. And the decline there was uh, from 15 to 24 percent decline in GDP. So it was massive. Well, uh, I don't remember you had 6 percent decline or something uh, quite normal for Europe. And uh, I think that for the future, Bulgaria has an interest in getting access uh, to the uh, e EU, uh, the ECB liquidity. For the other countries, uh, uh, Sweden the, uh, can manage. Denmark uh, has uh, a peg <laughs> since, is it 1982, to the first of the Deutsche Mark and then to, to the Euro. They should join uh, the Euro, but it's not going to happen because they have the same interest in getting into the getting access to liquidity and they have another problem. They have to buy two large reserves, which is a, which is a cost uh, to the country. Uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Sweden, uh, Poland, Hungary, Romania, I don't see anything uh, happening. It's simply not uh, politically there. They are floating exchange rates that all these countries feel uh, function well. Possibly the Czech Republic could come under pressure because they are trying to keep their currency down. So uh, the Czech Republic uh, could be a question. So I would put the candidates Bulgaria first, Denmark second, not likely to happen for political reasons, and then the Czech Republic because of the danger of uh, excessive appreciation of the currency. Okay, now I try to, to go the other way to make quicker answers instead of quicker questions. So Antoine, now it's your turn. Uh, thank you for mentioning the study of the European Parliament on the cost of non-Europe. We calculated that if we integrated Europe more, we would save 1.8 trillion euros every year with a lot of money. Uh, first question is, uh, why do you, I mean, every time I look at the results of the Nordic countries, I'm uh, amazed how, how well they do. And why do you, I am French, as you will have noticed from my accent, and why, why do you believe that uh, French and other southern countries are not doing so well, and why don't we try to get some uh, good practice from the north. The second question is, uh, do you believe that the, uh, uh, the electroshock that we expect from the new president here towards Europe, what he said at least this weekend, indicates that, indicates that uh, he would favor relations with the nations and less with the EU. So do you believe that the electroshock that, that could provoke would, uh, could maybe compensate the difficulty we will have with a less intense and vibrant transatlantic relationship? Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the question, Antoine. Second question, a clear yes. I think that this adds to the sense of crisis of Europe. Europe has to prove itself. And in particular, we have the French presidential elections in May. That is the real shock. Europe needs to prove itself more before that. My answer on the Nordic countries is, uh, very much that uh, uh, they were massively sh shaken by the crisis uh, 89 to 93. So uh, uh, from uh, 1970 to 1990, you, uh, Sweden had an average uh, annual growth that was one percentage point less than the OECD average. Sweden fell from the fourth to the 
uh, 18th richest country in the world in terms of GDP per capita. So what happened uh, uh, in the early 90s <clears throat> was a complete rethinking. And you can say that it was essentially that uh, um, ideology disappeared and it became uh, uh, pragmatic. Uh, uh, how do we solve this problem? rather than should we take a left-wing or a right-wing uh, uh, solution. And uh, uh, I think that you really need a substantial crisis. And it appears to me that the big problem with uh, uh, France and Italy is that they have not been shaken by serious crisis. That uh, they have just uh, muddled through. If you take Italy today, uh, I learned at the IMF yesterday, uh, has a GDP per capita in purchasing power parity, which is the same as it was in 95. And uh, it, it has been moving too slowly. But uh, life in Italy is nice, so people don't, uh, don't react very sharply. And uh, much of that is true also, uh, also in France. So you need to shake up society in, in some way, which is not uh, terrorist, but it's something that uh, concerns the economy. And uh, it's not easily done. OK, now we are there. Ladies will know. Thank you. My name is Barbara Dello. And I'm actually, has spent most of my life as a home care nurse. And each different home had a different way of life, different customs, different priorities, different ways of handling economics. And I went in and you learned to appreciate them all. But perhaps that's a little bit like the countries of Europe with different customs and things like that. How do the countries in Europe feel about being asked to change their way of life and their customs as part of the needed structural reform um, in order to achieve economic benefit. And also, you mentioned Germany a number of times. I wonder if there's uh, resentment about the more uh, economically successful countries in Europe. <coughs> <clears throat> yeah, no, no, a good question. I'm not quite sure how I uh, should answer it. Basically, nobody wants to change. You need a serious crisis for people to change. You have a couple of cases where you can say Germany did not have a serious crisis in uh, uh, around 2000 when they had these uh, hearts reforms that uh, Paul mentioned on the labor market. But they had a sense that they were falling behind seriously. And um, uh, famously, uh, The Economist uh, had a, a cover story, uh, I think it was late 99, where they um, had uh, Germany, the sick man of a euro. Uh, it was very much the sense that Germany is doing uh, the worst of them all. So you need to have to, uh, to go through. And then with regard to what reforms uh, you have, uh, what uh, we have emphasized here in this uh, book is very much how different various European uh, countries are. So, so for example, the Nordic countries have far too high uh, social benefits. And uh, Sweden and uh, Finland have terribly regulated labor markets. Well, the Danish labor market as well. Uh, why? Because uh, Sweden and Finland are dominated by big companies. Denmark is a small enterprise um, country. It's much easier than to ease up uh, the labor market. So, so indeed, I, I can just um, 
I agree, you don't get much uh, change without a serious crisis. It's not fun uh, to, uh, to, to, to change. I mean, Bulgaria had a massive crisis, 96, 97, that really put the country on a, a much uh, a better track. And you have a number of uh, uh, different solutions. Okay, now we have Fran, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Fran Burwell from the Council. Um, Anders, you listed seven reforms, areas of reform. Uh, when I looked at the graphs for each one, um, a number of times I noticed that you had in the good and bad categories, countries that were doing well and countries that were not doing well. So it was quite mixed if you looked by each of the, uh, of the reforms you've suggested. Have you drawn any conclusions about which reforms should be priorities or the order of reforms? If you are looking at encouraging these countries, certain countries to reform, are there some reforms that are absolutely essential and others that can be delayed? For example, are you offering options so that politicians can avoid labor market reforms, which might be more difficult? Uh. The OECD does this. They put five top reforms for each country, and it's unreadable. You, you can't read it and get it in some context. If you write a book and want to keep it to 200 pages, and you want to get an overview, you can't do that. But you have certain very general tendencies. You can say that Eastern Europe has got the tax system and the public finance system in a pretty good, good order. It's a particular group of countries that have got labor markets into good order, which is Germany, uh, Britain, Ireland, Denmark. I would take, uh, pick these. My big favorite when it comes to uh, pension system is, uh, is uh, Holland. And uh, 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 when it comes to uh, liberalization of service markets, uh, uh, the Nordic countries are doing very well. When it comes to uh, uh, re uh, research and uh, development, uh, uh, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Britain, um, uh, uh, Germany. Uh, so, so you have different uh, countries for uh, di different uh, uh, groups that are uh, doing well. We are not trying to say which reform should uh, what country do. But if you take it in general, I mean, Greece and Italy look as the two countries that are lagging behind in m most regards. Well, for example, Spain and Portugal have done some substantial uh, reforms and uh, uh, look good uh, in, uh, in several regards, not only because of uh, Simeon Jankov being uh, my co-author. We have quite a few positive features of, uh, of uh, Bulgaria. Okay, now it's the gentleman here. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council, and I have a question for Anders. Uh, prefaced that a year ago, nobody expected Donald Trump to become president. So in that context, I'm going to ask a question about uh, Europe's challenge rather than its just growth challenge. Um, you argue, I think correctly, that Europe is going to need some kind of a crisis. Well, the Soviet Union had a pretty good crisis in 1990, and it went poof. Now you have a whole series of sub-crises breaking out, Trump here, Putin from the east, 
Brexit as the precursor of the elections that you're talking about, the fundamental contradiction in the EU of, a, of monetary currency but no political union. Um, who's going to lead in all this? And how do you see the necessary political forces to be generated in Europe when, I don't know who the spokesman for Europe is in Europe. You take a look at Trump's cabinet. Uh, Jim Mattis is probably the strongest spokesperson for Europe and he's only going to be the Secretary of Defense. So what do you see as the internal dynamics in Europe that would really make the case for the structural reform that I think you rightly argue? But I think in this case, implementation is going to be a real issue and I'm at this stage, more pessimistic about this taking shape? Uh, Harlan, good question, and I will carefully avoid making too many public statements about too many persons. It's quite obvious that the leader today in Europe is Angela Merkel, and there's nobody else who can really rival her. Uh, I think that most of small uh, people from small nations strongly regret that uh, Great Britain is no longer there because uh, uh, Great Britain, as Harold Nicholson uh, emphasizes in his old book, Diplomacy, has a strong tradition of taking care of small countries, which uh, 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 France, uh, on the contrary, does, does not uh, have, uh, have at all. And uh, Germany has developed it very much under uh, Angela Merkel. So she's the only uh, clear leader. One would uh, like to see stronger leadership in the uh, European institutions, but uh, it's difficult to see it uh, uh, today. I mean, it's not even news that the European Parliament got a new president, uh, and, uh, Antonio Tajani, uh, uh, yesterday, uh, because nobody actually pays attention. So, forward yeah, to uh, Just uh, on the structural reforms, as I said, I, I do think that Anas is right in, in pointing to the importance of it. But I also do sense, no, we should not be uh, too dismissive of what has been achieved and what is, is going on, in, uh, on on the structural reform side. Well, I mentioned uh, uh, Spain before. If you look at uh, the candidates for the presidency in France, the center candidates, uh, uh, I, I think they all uh, embrace uh, uh, to various degrees and, and with different focus, but uh, definitely uh, 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 no, focus on, on structural reforms. Uh, 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 you will see an article, I think it was today's FT, that marvel about the fact that Macron has a, has a search in the poll, even though he is uh, no, really calling for, 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 for structural reforms, uh, painful full uh, structural reforms. Uh, I think even in Italy, uh, uh, Renzi early on did uh, some very important structural reforms. Uh, 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 the political situation is more, more difficult, but I, I do think that there is, uh, 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 you know, I, I do think that uh, European policymakers are, 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 are quite conscious about what, what, what has, what has to, to be done. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's Politically not uh, easy, but I, uh, uh, no, the, we have we have come quite some way. If you, you know, I have, uh, uh, I think I've been to every Eurogroup meeting in the last five six years since the crisis started. Meeting of European Ministers of Finance, and I can assure you, they have come a long way. 
in, uh, in their structural reforms, in their architecture. They are well uh, you know, close to having a, a, banking and, and a banking union. They have firewalls. They have a crisis management uh, mechanism uh, in place. And they have, a, uh, you know, again, a number of countries that have run significant structural reforms. So I would not... Uh, uh, I would sort of, you know, there's always the discussion of whether the glass is half full or half empty. But I, they, Europe has come a long way the last five or six years. That's, uh, that's my view. We, we have time for one more question, and that's the gentleman there behind with the glasses. Um. Thank you very much. Altunen from Istanbul. I want to ask a question about Turkey. Uh, Turkey has, trying, has been trying to become a member of European Union, and it has uh, 80 million people with 27 average age. And uh, although there are many uh, civil wars around its, itself, uh, its growth rate, latest growth rate is 3.5% compared to many European countries, it's highly better. And it's also uh, highly better than many uh, European countries like uh, Greece, Rom Romania, Macedonia. So what's your perception on Turkey's application on European Union? And if, it, if Turkey gets uh, accepted by European Union to become a uh, member of European Union, would it be uh, good for European Union overall? And would it increase growth of uh, European Union? Uh, well, this is very much a, a political question. First, uh, uh, Turkey has done extremely well since 1996 when the customs union with the European Union uh, came into force. And was it in '59 that uh, Turkey applied for membership of the European Union? And this has just been uh, lying aside uh, uh, since then. The, uh, the greatest period, I think, was 2002 to 2006. Uh, uh, during the first uh, term of uh, 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 then pre Prime Minister uh, Erdogan. But at current, you know, it's, it's more political issues that would block, uh, uh, block Turkey. Previously, we had the situation that particularly France, uh, uh, for, for various political reasons, uh, opposed the membership of, uh, of uh, uh, Turkey while uh, Germany was um, hesitant. Uh, the Nordic countries were by and large in favor of Turkey joining. I think that now the question is simply dead for quite some uh, time because of uh, the, the recent unfortunate events in, uh, in Turkey and the EU uh, reaction to it. I, I, I don't really deal with it. It's just, a, so to say, an expert assessment of where the situation is. Uh, uh, of course, if Turkey would join, it would change the European very considerably. And there are quite a few of my friends who think that uh, this could be the, the, the revival of uh, the European Union that Harlan talked about here for other uh, reasons. So uh, there are certainly strong reasons for it. We can say that the expansion of the European Union to Eastern Europe has strongly revived Europe, and in particular what Paul talked about here, the German supply cha uh, chain in, into Central Europe has been a strong reviving effect. And you can say that Italy suffers from not having uh, uh, close uh, countries uh, 
uh, as Germany has with Central, Central uh, Europe, and therefore not being able to benefit as much from outsourcing. You know, outsourcing is not a bad word in Germany. It is a bad word in the, in the United States because uh, Germans understand that their big companies would not survive as they do now if they couldn't outsource. I don't understand why Americans don't understand that also. So thank you very much, Anders Roslund and uh, Paul Thompson, uh, for a very interesting um, couple of hours. I, there are some topics that were never raised uh, in this, and one of them kind of touches a bit of what you say. It's, for example, the importance of immigration to Europe, uh, which is the reverse picture of what we usually get here. Also, so, something very important, I think, education in Europe, where, where we can certainly look to the United States. Uh, but I, that just could, should spur you to, to read the book. Um, and um, unfortunately, I have to rush off. And I know there are a couple of not so happy people here, but maybe Anders and, and Paul could give them a few minutes to get answers to their questions. Uh, but I have 28 member states waiting for me, so I have to <laughs> run. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>